thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Back Chat, exploring the five pillars of health, thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also your neurology with Dr. Paul Bogamo and Dr. Kim Fenton. Welcome to Back Chat. My name is Paul Bogamo, and it's great to be here on our next podcast. Back Chat is about being your best. It does this by exploring the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also in your neurology. Today's back chat will cover the pillar of thinking. So help me today, as always, it's a great pleasure to introduce my fellow co-host, Kim Fenton. Hi, Kim. How are you going? Good, Paul. How are you? Um, well, thank you. So what's news? Well, uh, what's news? I've actually just gone through some selective exams with my eldest child to get into a selective high school program. Okay. So she's been busy doing that and we've been concentrating on managing the pressures for her of that. She's a bit of an overachiever sometimes. That's probably the biggest thing that's been happening in our household. It's, it must be that time of the year, I think, Kim, because uh, Kiara, my uh, 17-year-old year 11 daughter, she's been sitting year, year 11 exams, so we've been having... Uh, heavy chutes around legal studies and maths methods and biology and English, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's it's an interesting time, isn't it, when we think about it and reflect on the pressures with adolescents. And I know when we went through years ago, I mean, we felt the pressures, didn't we, when we studied? But do you think nowadays, as parents looking down, the pressures are higher, or what do you think? Yeah. I think they are higher, much higher. I think the age of the internet and instant information has meant that children these days, their assignments are more high pressure, the expectations on a child in grade five, grade six, year eight, year nine is a lot higher. The work they're producing is a lot more sophisticated than what we've expected to produce at the same age. So I think there is a lot more pressure these days on the kids. And I think you said an interesting word called expectations, and there is, these are expectations that sometimes others impose on us versus uh, expectations that we generate ourselves. And, you know, kids, adolescents, it's it's a tough world. They're trying to work out the world. There's there's hormones that are, that are making changes in body function. There's, there's making big decisions about subject streams. There's first-time relationships, boyfriend, girlfriend. You know, they're, they're trying to work out the world. And then suddenly you, you put on all these extra layers with regards, exams and extra expectations and suddenly you can see how the stresses start to rise. That's right. Well, we're very fortunate tonight to bring back one of our podcast interviewers uh, with with Wayne Swass. So Wayne, as you recall, Kim, we interviewed in podcast number 23 and Wayne talked about his battles with uh, clinical depression during his football career. So let me give some background to those who didn't hear that particular podcast or who don't know who Wayne Swass, if they've come from overseas. Wayne's one of the most highly rated performers in the AFL history, playing 282 games as an elite level for, at the elite level for 14 and a half years with both the Kangaroos and the Sydney Swans. During his successful 14 years career, Wayne achieved the following honours, won the three club best and fairest, he was a premiership player for the Kangaroos in 96, was an All-Australian in 99. Team of the Century and Hall of Fame for the Kangaroos. Since retiring in 2002, Wayne has established himself as a highly respected AFL broadcaster on TV, radio, online, newspaper, as well as the internet. And currently he works with Triple M uh, Footy as well as Croc Media. 
Interestingly, Wayne founded the Sunrise Foundation in 2006, an organisation he created after becoming one of the first AFL players to speak openly about his, his experience with mental health conditions, which included depression. And the Sunrise Foundation, which whilst no longer currently operating, was, was created to deliver a preventative education program to secondary school students between 2007 and 10. So more than 5,000 students participated in this Head Smart program. Since the time, Wayne has also become a leading mental health advocate, and later on the show, I'll talk about his new venture called Pucker Up, which we'll we'll uh, verse later in the podcast. Hey, Wayne, how are you going? Good, thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me, Kim. Great to be back. There you welcome. Indeed, indeed. Now you've been a pretty busy boy, Wayne, and uh, you know <laughs> you've uh, made a bit of a career shift. That's the fact. Yeah. Do you want to sort of maybe just give it a context about what's happened? Of, of recent note to you because there's been some big shifts in your life. Well, there have been since uh, I joined your podcast uh, a while ago, uh, Paul, and that is uh, when we last spoke, I was a sales professional within the Telstra ecosystem. I'd been spending, um, you know, spent the last 14 years working in, in AFL media, which I continue to do, but I had also been spending quite a lot of time uh, really ramping up my advocacy around this whole important conversation, which is mental health and emotional well-being. I've done that via various social media platforms. I've um, deliberately looked to um, make myself available for as many public speaking opportunities as I can. And I must admit, when we spoke last time, I was trying to work out I now know what my passion and my purpose is outside of my family, and that is to work in the area of mental health. It's what nourishes my soul. But up until earlier this year, I'd been trying to work out, well, how could I supplement my income with Telstra and allow myself to do that? Well, that that answer came to me not by my doing, but a man that's been on my journey for 12 years, a mentor, a great friend who's been successful in business. Um said to me one day, he said, uh, Wayne, how much of an impact do you think that you could have if this was your full-time job? And I laughed at him. I said, you and I both know the answer. I could have a much bigger impact compared to what I am now. And his response was, I knew you would say that. And as a result of that, we're going to invest some capital from our own business to give you that opportunity. So I'm six weeks into the new job with Pucker Up and I feel very fortunate, but I feel very excited and I'm I'm where I'm need. I'm where I need to be, and I'm doing what I need to be doing because this is this is where I, I this is what I'm here for. Look, it's really interesting, and um, you know, we know from an AFL perspective that uh, of recent note, there was a, a, a an elite AFL football from the Collingwood Football Club, Alex Fasolo, who yep. came out and mentioned about his mental battles that he's having, and and I thought about that compared to you know, your podcast in 23 and how, you know, you your whole, you know, in pretty much your entire career, you, you kept that to yourself and that's now your major drive. And then we had a situation just recently with Alex actually coming forward and mentioning about his challenges. And look, there was certainly some interesting media responses by certain individuals. But what was your take on all that in regards to what Alex did? Well, I became, I became aware of uh, the story. I was in Sydney last Tuesday at a mental health um, panel discussion and I became aware on Tuesday afternoon that there was going to be an article in the paper. I knew it was a Collingwood player. I, I, I wasn't aware of who it was, 
And then when I became aware of it, I just thought, how how good is this that we've got a high-profile elite sports person who has the full support of his club, his coaches, his family, and obviously there's some off-field issues that are causing him some stress. And I've always advocated, Paul and Kim, that elite sports are great opportunities and great environments to be a part of. But the mistake that I consistently see is elite sports and these codes and the industry at large make the mistake of just recognising the athlete that they see in front of them. Behind the athlete is a person, a dynamic individual who has strengths but they also have challenges and they have weaknesses and vulnerability. But elite sport, by its very nature, is focused on the outcome of the athletes and the collective of that. And I've always said for a number of years that you cannot just recognise the athlete because we must invest in understanding the individual. We must get to know the person. What's their family history like? What have, what have been the things that have caused the individual stress in their life so that we can prepare them as an athlete to cope with stress on the sporting field, whatever sporting field that is, male or female. But we have a responsibility to equip, equip these individuals with skills that allow them to cope with stressful life situations. And I think when Alec comes out and makes that statement, it's a wonderful, strong statement to say to the broader community that here is a high-profile, well-paid athlete who's dealing with some personal issues. So instead of hiding it, he's actually coming forward going, I've got this challenge, I need to deal with it, I'm going to deal with it openly. We don't need to know the specific details, but what that actually does is two things. One, they are in control of the story. And what I mean, who I mean uh, they is in Alex, the club, and his family. So they control the story. They say enough to give us an understanding of what he's going through. So it's mental health conditions. He's specifically dealing with depression. Okay, now as a footballing community and as a community, we know what he's dealing with. So what does that do? That gives Alex time. That takes pressure off of trying to perform every week in a very intense environment, which is AFL footy. He can train. He can be a part of the club, which I think is important for structure and routine. But he doesn't feel this tremendous pressure of going and having to perform with a serious medical health condition. I think that's number one. Number two, it sends a really powerful message to the thousands of men and women who are dealing with these illnesses on a daily basis that if, it, if Alex Fasola can do that, I can do it. We need to give hope, a sense of connection, and a a message to the broader community that this can affect an Alex Fasolo, a Wayne Swass, a mother, a father, a teacher, a business owner, an employee, anybody in the community can be affected. Yet rightly or wrongly, elite sportsmen and women are held to such high regard and put on, I would argue, as a higher pedestal than our Prime Minister and people that run and govern our country. So let's look at sport being the best vehicle to start to educate the broader community about the impacts of mental health conditions, that it can affect elite sportsmen and women, yet elite sportsmen and women are not afraid of putting their hand up and asking for help. I think they are the, 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 the two big positives. The really disappointing thing, and, and you and I have spoken about this uh, privately, Paul, the really disappointing thing off the back of 24 hours of applauding and acknowledging the courage and the strength of Alex to share a part of what he's dealing with was damaged tremendously by an insensitive, uneducated, 
ill-considered tweet by a leading media figure here in Melbourne. And whilst the tweet's been removed, I had this conversation today with uh, with with somebody I was talking to. The 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 damage and and the danger of 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 a tweet that was so inappropriate 24 hours after a young man has done a courageous thing is this. Alex has the support of a football club in an elite-level environment. He's got the support of his coaches. I know that for a fact. He's got the support of his administration and the medical people and his family. There are people that may listen to this program that don't have the same level of support, and they're grappling with something I grappled with every day for 12 and a half years before I spoke openly about my conditions and my experience. Can I ask for help? Can I take the risk of asking for help because I'm worried about what people will think, feel or stay? Will this thing called stigma, which at its rawest is discrimination, will I be discriminated against by family, by friends, by my employer, by people that I know if I put my hand up and ask for help? And that's the real the real issue and the, and the biggest thing that I was so disappointed with with that inappropriate tweet last week was you can remove the tweet, but the damage has already been done. And what I mean by damage, there are people today that are working, that are trying to find a bit of courage to ask for help. Yet that tweet is another reminder that stigma lives and breathes in a wonderful country that is so inclusive in so many ways that is Australia. Stigma is unacceptable. It is a significant barrier to people getting help. It is preventing people from getting help. And at its worst, it is a contributing factor, in my opinion, why eight people take their lives tragically every day in a country like Australia. And we can't have it. And that is, I guess, a long-winded explanation as to why I passionately believe in the value of these conversations and why I absolutely believe that stigma has no place in a country like Australia because it is costing lives. Well, you know, it's... Uh... I think that gentleman, you know, I think there was a chorus of condemnation and, um, you know, I think of incidents with racism and how there's re-education programs to try and, yep. you know, take people through process. I'm not sure what's happened, to be honest, in that sort of circumstance. Um, but, you know, we've got... Well, the thing I'd, the thing I'd like to say, Paul, about uh, something that was so damaging and so disappointing was Alex makes his announcement Wednesday. The inappropriate tweet gets tweeted out Thursday. It gets removed within 20 minutes. Thursday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday, I, for one, had multiple conversations on some of the biggest uh, radio outlets here in Melbourne and you know across the country. And by Sunday afternoon, um, I, I, I sort of reflected, I lost count of the number of interviews that I did but from something so disappointing, I took great comfort in the broader conversation that this terrible tweet led to a big conversation. Mm. And that's that's got to be the thing that we, we, we focus on is that out of that disappointment, it's opened up the door for so many broader, productive, positive conversations around a really important issue. And, and, and if, 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 if people who are listening... Uh, question the value of these conversations. I can assure you the number of messages that I get via Facebook, via Instagram, via Twitter that are private, mess, private messages 
thanking me and it's not about me. I'm just a facilitator for these really important conversations, but thanking me for normalizing mental health and emotional well-being, it's giving people hope. We may never know, we may never meet, we may never see people that we are having a positive or negative impact on. These conversations are life-changing. They are so valuable and so important that by having them today on this podcast, by having them consistently in our day-to-day life, we may be giving hope to someone and we, we, may, we may not realise that he's really struggling. And, and that's the greatest gift that we've got outside of raising our family and giving our kids the tools that hopefully allow them to cope with stress is the opportunity of positively impacting another person's life is the greatest gift that every one of us has the opportunity to do. And you're right, Wayne, and it would be good to see more people on social media having that sort of attitude as well of having more positive impact than a negative impact. And I think if um, we think about kids these days, they have to learn to navigate the dangers of social media with a whole lot less life experience than adults. We know how it affects adults badly. So with people who are much more sensitive, they're younger, such as adolescents, that can be really challenging. So how do we help younger people affected by mental health issues manage those sorts of challenges when someone comes at them in social media? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really, I mean, it's, it's a great question, Kim, and it, it's, it's a question that I think every parent, every teacher, every principal, Everybody that has a role to play in a young person's life is probably grappling with this. And I've got three kids and I sometimes joke to my children, especially my twin girls who are, who are nearly 14. When I went to school, I started school with a chalkboard and a piece of chalk and they look at me like I'm a Martian with two heads. <laughs> but that's an indication. There was no computers. There was no, there was no mobile phones. Mm. There was none of that. So uh, for me growing up, it was a great childhood, but it was a simple life. My primary relationships were the ones that I developed in person. I, I, I worked in the telecommunications industry for five years, and I travel a lot with my various roles. And, I, I, and I'm guilty of this myself. But you walk into any cafe, any airport, any place where people are, and the primary relationship that people have, in particular kids, is a screen at the end of their hand. Kids' primary relationships invariably, in my experience, are at the end of their fingertips. So they develop relationships by pushing buttons and keyboards. We're all old enough, respectfully, that our primary relationships were developed by our interpersonal skills. We, we To talk to a young girl who we liked, we had to make that you know, frightening first step of saying hello. We had to develop relationships with mates, with my father, with all of the people that are important in our lives are developed by our skills and our ability to talk and communicate. With kids nowadays, and this is not to be critical of kids because technology has invaded every aspect of our life. The way that they teach, the way that they learn, the way that they're taught at school, technology plays such an important role. But I'm a firm believer in educating my children and hopefully adolescent kids that your identity and your self-worth is not reflected by how many followers, likes, shares, comments or reposts that you get. Respecting that social media plays a role in their life. We can't eliminate it because that's their world. But how do we educate them? How do we structure things into their life at home 
at school in every area as much as possible to say that social media is important, but it's not everything. And I'll give you an example is kids, as a general comment, Kim, I don't think that kids have the tools or the confidence to know how to deal with conflict. Someone says something that's inappropriate on, on, on a social media platform can change the demeanour of one of my kids. So I'll, I'll talk to my children about, okay, what, what's been said? They'll eventually say it begrudgingly, and then we'll start to have a conversation of, okay, well, what, what could you do? Could you challenge the person on it? No, it's almost as if the comments that they get via a social media take on a life of their own. So they take that as fact. This person's had this to say about me, then that's how I must be. We're constantly trying to educate our own three children, our girls in particular because they're a bit older, and girls approach this differently to boys is my experience. But I'm constantly, constantly trying, and my wife is too, consciously trying to manage the amount of time that kids have on their gadgets but balance that with, okay, if here's a situation that presents itself, how could we deal with that? I say it again, it's not likes, follows, shares, comments, retweets. That's not a reflection of you as an individual. That's just a platform that allows people to have whatever comments they want, good, bad, or otherwise. So it's, I guess I'm, 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 I think it's really incumbent on us as parents, teachers, people of influence in kids' lives that, look, I can't tell people what to do. But I think it's paramount that as parents, we don't just let our kids spend all of their waking hours on social media because I think that's dangerous. You know, Wayne, talking about communication and um, this important topic with adolescents and young adults, I think you know you can sort of go to that level as well. I heard something really interesting on SEN this morning, and it was around what. I th- I'm pretty sure it was Brenton and uh, Brenton Sanderson, uh, the ex Adelaide coach, and around his ways to communicate to different age levels of his players. So texting some of his players. What's that? He would text some of his players to yeah. tell them whether or not they were playing or not. So feedback. So feedback. He would. Yep. So the younger guys, he, you know, some of those guys would be 17 or 18. You know, they'd be adolescents. You know, to adults. You know. Uh, late adolescents, early adults, and he would text them to at, at a range to the older players, the established players, who would be an eyeball to eyeball conversation. And yep. I, I mean, I thought that was fascinating. And I, and I thought to myself, from that, wow, there are certain things that I think that you still have to get, do face to face. I just don't know how. You can do that and maybe adapt to a lifestyle and say that's the process versus a scenario where, you know, you bring a young player in, have a conversation, shut the door, you know, and say, mate, how you going? Versus mm. maybe giving mm. feedback via text and then they process all that and then I'm sure he would have had a situation where he would have that eyeball eyeball conversation, but I don't know. Mm. I mean, what's your thoughts on that? Did you hear that? Yeah, I've heard that before, and my and my 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 view, without any knowledge of of, of um, you know what why a young player may feel. My 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 uh, comment to that would be, again, kids are getting bombarded with informations, but invariably it's off a screen, so the kids may not have the emotional 
confidence or intelligence to sit down with a senior coach at an AFL football club. Uh, they're taught to play sport. They're, they're educated to play sport. They're told that they're good. They get put into environments where the environment is there to help them become better. But I've always said you can't just develop the athletic ability of the individual. We need to develop the person as well. And in everything that we do, whether it's a sporting context, whether it's treating people, patients as a physiotherapist, whether we're an educator or whether we're parents, they are all built on our ability to develop relationships. And I said this as recently as today. Whether it's a sporting club, it's a business. Business and sport are very similar. It's a different context and we're, and, and we're doing different things. But our greatest asset and our most valuable resource are people. And in my experience, people want to be respected, valued, admired, and I'll go so far as saying loved. I wanted to be loved by my parents, but I wanted to be loved by my teachers and I wanted to be loved by my coaches. And I grew up in an environment where love was not a value that lived at all in a football club. So this notion of being text criticism or feedback by a coach, geez, that would have been nice. But I can't remember a time in 11 years playing elite football where we weren't systematically taken apart for poor performances in front of the entire group. I don't, I don't support that way of, of, of coaching. I don't agree with that philosophy, which is why I gravitate to the likes of Brendan Bolton, Luke Beveridge, um, Alan Richardson, because they genuinely care about their players. They see their players as people. And if you put that into a classroom context, I trust, like I'm sure we all do as parents, I trust teachers at my two schools that my kids go to for six hours a day to inspire, to teach, to lead, to influence my children. That's a tremendous responsibility, but it's also a great, a great opportunity that teachers play such a big role. I would argue as, as saying that teachers play as big a role with the development and growth of children because they spend so much of their adolescent years at school. And I can certainly remember my favourite teacher, Mrs Porter from Grade 5 at Jamison Street Primary School in Warrnambool, but uh, I won't mention his name. Uh, one of my, my least favourite teachers was a man that used to pull me by the ears because I would misbehave and stand me in front of the class and put my nose against the blackboard for the entire period. So that, that's, 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 that's an example of the positive or negative role parents and teachers play in the development of so many kids. You know, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's a big responsibility. Hey, Kim, you know, as a parent, you know, it's something that we've seen with our kids, haven't we? You know, you, if, if there's circumstances, do you find with your girls, they can come home and you can tell something's happened during the day at school. You know, there's, you know, you just might be in the car and you think, hmm, one of the girls is just acting differently. It, it, it can be that instinctive, can't it, do you think, Kim? Oh, absolutely, Paul. It, it, you can read it on their face. And <laughs> at the moment my children have, they're only in grade four and grade six, so they have no access to social media. So their interactions are face-to-face. -face. So something actually has to have happened to them in person. And I think that at the moment they're dealing with little problems because they're little kids and when they're bigger they'll deal with big problems. 
But I guess I loathe the day when they get onto social media and the things that are said to them are far more extreme. Because I think in person, even though my children might have a bad interaction with somebody, I think in person a negative interaction is a lot more gentle than it is online where the keyboard warriors feel like they can say anything they like. And, you know, if they can get down now about a slight interaction, what will happen one day when somebody Mm. says something really terrible to them? I guess that's a worry for every parent. But, guys, we've also communicated via email and there's many times I'm sure we've all received emails and you've read the email or Facebook message and you thought there's no context behind these words. You know, what what's this person saying? And then you sort of probe a bit and you go, oh, you were just joking. Okay, no dramas at all. And we navigate through that and probably a bit of life experience, we can navigate through it. But, again, you take away the life experience and you take an adolescent who's having a bad day and then they get a message that sort of personally tugs at some heartstrings and it's not contextualised, right? You know, you can create a major storm for that, uh, child on that day, on that night, for that week, and uh, it can perpetuate. What do you guys think? Well, yeah, I, I, I think unfortunately what exacerbates the challenges for adolescents and kids now in the world of social media is that if, if, if I post something very negative about either of you on Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, Snapchat, even though I've never I've never used Snapchat, I don't know what it does. It's not a private conversation. These are public comments. This is for the world. It's not back in the day. Not that I'm advocating it, but if, if Paul and I had a disagreement, that disagreement was face to face and it was physical invariably. Okay, or if you and I had an argument, it would be an argument that you and I both had. Uh, it might be one or two friends that heard it, or it might just be between mm. you and I. Yeah. Whereas nowadays. The, the, social media is a platforms that are global. Anybody, whether they're friends or followers, can see this conversation. That, to me, only exacerbates the stress, the pain, the hurt that a young child might feel because it's not a private comment. It's gone out to the masses. And I think that that's a really, really difficult challenging and painful things for kids to deal with and how do you get that back i mean that tweet that we talked about about alex for solo most people in australia know what the tweet was and know what the tweet was said the damage has been done how do you recoup that you know alex will be all right but how do you get a 14 year old child um who felt that they had a great network of friends that now the world has seen some derogatory uh, or disgraceful comments, how do you build that child back up? It's public humiliation, I think. So when you are having an interaction with another person and it is negative online, it is a form of public humiliation and it's ongoing. So where you might have a conflict in real life, it lasts five or ten minutes, maybe, maybe it lasts two and you walk away and it's done. And as you say, it's only the witnesses that are there at the time that have seen it. But now it can go on for days, weeks, months, people can be talking about it. So I think that really does put a lot more pressure on our kids now than what we had when we weren't in the realm of social media. I don't know whether there's there was less mental health issues in young people when I was younger, but I didn't hear of it at all. So it could have mm. been a lack of awareness 
or it could have been that it was less. I'm not sure which it is. But I know these days there are good reasons for why children would feel under pressure when they have that kind of situation going on. It's it's kind of like with the lights and the the comments and things, it's kind of like an ongoing popularity contest, whereas before there was 10, 20, 30 years ago it was you were under pressure to be a bit popular, but now it's measured for you and it's measured mm. constantly. So I think those pressures exist in children now which create mental health issues that are exacerbated in our young people, which is, is leading to all sorts of damage as they get older. So, so Wayne, what do you think about, I mean, we've sort of moved to an area of almost like talking about cyberbullying to some degree. In, in mm. scenarios like this, what do we do when kids are, what, what's your general advice? You know, we're not clinicians here per se, but what sort of general advice would you say that we need to let our adolescents who, you know, parents of adolescents who listen to this podcast I'm sure there'll be parents who listen to the podcast and say, you know what, to my my son or daughter, have a listen to this podcast. What are some broad principles we can discuss here to help that can be useful help tips? Well, well, uh, uh, philosophically and fundamentally, it's my wife Rachel and I's responsibility to raise our children. It's not the responsibility of of their schools, respectively. Yeah, schools will play a really important role. But the primary responsibility for nurturing, developing, supporting, loving and caring our children is my wife and I. So we have a responsibility to provide a safe, supporting, loving environment at home. But we also have a responsibility to have conversations. I mean, sometimes our girls don't feel like talking and and, and I'm not making this a sexist comment. But there are, there are some very distinct differences with the way my daughters deal with things compared to their younger brother who's uh, three years younger. That's neither here nor bad. It's neither here nor there. It's just it's genetically males and females will deal with things differently. I, I, I think sometimes, I want to be very careful how I word this, but I think sometimes parents or some parents believe that it's the responsibility of the school to teach my children these kids. No, it's not. Um, it, it, we need to ask our kids about, you know, what's going on in social media. Uh, we need to ask questions about uh, something that we've picked up that might be, you know, on the surface, like Kim said, the face changes in my daughters. They can go from very happy to very sad in a very quick period of time. My first question is, has something been said on social media? No, Dad. No means yes. I've learnt that. You know, there's, that they speak. There's a different language, but I have a responsibility. So does my wife to make sure that we are constantly talking to our kids about good things, but also if there's something that is going on, have the conversation. I'll give you one real example. Um, I, I, I was unaware, blissfully unaware, of a series called Thirteen Reasons until about four weeks ago. I had no idea that this show existed. Mm. I became aware of it when my, girl, my my wife said to me, do you know what 13 Reasons is? I said, I've never heard of it. I said, what is it? She goes, it's a, it's a show about suicide. I thought, okay, um, who watches it? It's for teenagers. Okay. So fundamentally I've got a problem with a show that's talking about suicide that's being marketed to kids because of the obvious reasons. So then once I heard that, I said to my wife, I said, have they watched it? She said, they've watched the entire series. Wow. So yeah. the moment I found that out, um, it, th- there was a couple of things. One, I work in this field and I had no idea that this series existed until I got told by my wife. And two, 
I made sure we had conversations with our kids. You've watched this show. What, what did you feel? Uh, you know, what do you think about it? Do you have any concerns about it? Does it cause you any stress? So it's not about us telling our kids what they should be doing, but it's really important that we're asking questions with our kids all the time. How do you feel about this? Do you have any concerns about it? Because it's really important our kids, as they're developing and changing hormonally, by the time they leave home, talking openly and honestly about good things and things that cause stress is probably the greatest set of skills that we can empower our kids to take when they become adults. It's uh, very, you know, it's 13 Reasons has been... um have you heard much about it, Kim? Yourself from uh... yes, I have. I, I have. I know the series, and uh, it, it's been interesting. I know it's, it's an American-based series, and I think uh, there's certainly been some heavy criticisms about uh, the show. I think they've tried to justify it by saying it, it's you know it's the conversation type. So now that gets out there, but it's it's um, like Wayne says, it's a, it's it's targeted at a specific age group, and you know it's, it's you know we know in this podcast we have to put some stuff at the back end of this podcast to sort of mm-hmm. you know for mm-hmm. for reassurances that this, this this these messages can catch people in different levels of where they are in their mental well being, and um, it it just. Um, yeah, I, I know at Yarra Valley they actually, I think, banned the, the show, I think. Uh, it was... Um... Well, I know, I know it's caused a lot of schools a lot of concern because they're not sure how to manage the situation. And and I think you're absolutely right, Paul. Uh, we've talked about this uh, quite a bit recently. We have a responsibility, whether it's this podcast or it's me speaking publicly or it's you and I going to deliver a presentation like we did at Ivanhoe Grammar uh, last year. It's not. It's just not okay to go and raise the issue of mental health, mental health conditions, emotional well-being, without being confident that the framework is is there to support. Because when we talk about these things, and it may happen, when we're talking like this about real issues that can cause significant stress in people's lives, we need to also uh, encourage people and remind them that if this does Uh, bring to the surface some stress, some anxiety or some feelings that you're not comfortable with. It's really important that you talk to people, talk to mum or dad, talk to a a friend, talk to a counsellor, talk to anyone that you trust so that you have that conversation. It's irresponsible to go and present to a school, for me to go and talk wherever I talk all over the country. For a show like 13 Reasons, it is irresponsible to deliver a program like that without confidently being able to answer the question and that is have we put a framework around the people that may see this who might be contemplating this decision this option right here right now and if they can't answer that question and i don't know how they could responsibly answer that with a yes then in actual fact that program may may, and I hope I'm horribly wrong, may lead to other people making that same decision. And you can't do that. That's irresponsible. So how do we support parents, Wayne, in having those conversations with their kids? Because some parents are obviously better at asking those questions than others. And also some children are better at responding to those questions from their parents than others. 
Yeah, well, I, 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 look, I, I think my wife and I, uh, we're not experts by any stretch of the imagination, but with my own lived experience and, and my beautiful wife, Rachel, has been on every day of that journey, um, we're comfortable. I think being comfortable, what does that really mean? Basic understanding. We, we, we're not expected to have the answers. We like to think that we do as parents. But okay, if mental health is a conversation that I'm not comfortable having, how do I get comfortable? I start to learn about it. What are some of the signs and symptoms? What are the challenges that might um, be presented in boys versus girls? So really what I'm saying is it's incumbent on parents to educate ourselves at a basic level so that we can confidently begin to have a conversation. And really, for me, it's about a safe home environment where we will ask our children any question if we've got a concern or we've noticed a change in behaviour with our kids, bearing in mind we may not have the answer, but we want to facilitate a conversation with our children that sends a strong message to them is that, hey, it's normal to talk about things that might be upsetting you. It's a really important process to go through. And our job as parents is to facilitate those conversations with our kids. Our kids may not want to talk about it, and sometimes the, my girls don't want to talk to me. As much as I want them to, the outcome that I want is my kids to talk to my wife or I. It doesn't matter who they talk to as long as they talk. And then as part of that, they can begin to talk to each other and support each other. You know, I think as parents, we like to fix things. Sometimes we need to accept before we start the conversation, we may, may not, we may not be able to fix the situation. We just need to provide the environment where our kids know they can come and tell us about the great things in their life, but they have parents that are willing to listen without always giving the answers to talk about things that might be causing them stress. It's funny. So maybe we need to help our parents understand that an uncomfortable conversation is is okay with your kids? Yeah. I, 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 and I couldn't agree with you any more, Kim. I, I would rather ask an uncomfortable question or begin an, uncom an uncomfortable conversation than live with the regret of never asking it with some of the situations that people are dealing with because kids have made decisions because they just weren't asked or they didn't feel that they could ask it. As tough as it is, as uncomfortable as it is, as difficult as these conversations are, I would rather have those conversations than not and and something terrible happens to my child. I just I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't live with that. Absolutely. To put another scenario to it, I was just thinking whilst you guys were talking there, and I, in as a chiropractor in, in twenty years, I've had four occasions where we've had to act with patients who have, who have sort of made suggestions to me about suicide. And on each of those four occasions, to come back to this point here, for me it's just been aware of something different, okay? Yeah. So when we're talking to our parents here uh, and thinking about their children, you know, we have the – because we are parents of our children and – you know, hopefully connected with our children, we can see the paths that they've come from, where they're at and where they're going to. And we know there's going to be challenges, hiccups, that can all fall within variations of them just developing that 
emotional intelligence in developing their, their, their mindsets and their mindfulness and handling stress, etc. But when things seem to be consistently going the wrong way, I think, you know, when we think about the early signs and symptoms that there is some adolescent mental health issues, the parent just to see a point of difference that goes beyond just a day starts to happen, you know, a few days, it starts to happen a week, and then it starts to build further is a real good flag for us to think, okay, something's starting to happen which we need to act on earlier versus later. What do you think, Wayne? Yeah, look, I, I agree with that, Paul. Um, I mean, we're all parents, so no one knows our kids better than us. We, 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 we are the best people to identify or notice or detect a change or something different. That's not normal. That's not right. And, and we live in a world now where we, we're, we're so busy. I mean, we're all busy. Our kids' lives are busy. We're busy. But as a parent, I, I, look, I can't tell anybody how to parent their children. That's their, that's their responsibility and that's their opportunity. But in regards to our house and our role, trust your instincts. If you're noticing something, have that conversation with your child. And sometimes your children don't want to have the conversation. But we feel like we have a responsibility to support all of the good things going on, but also help them deal with some of the stressful things coming on. And and and, and like I said before, I, I, maybe my children have been brought, born into the wrong house because for so long I hid uh, the the impacts of my mental health conditions. But 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 the, one of the benefits that that experience and th- those journeys have provided me is that I understand the importance of communication, of reaching out and asking for help, of helping my children develop their resilience, their ability to cope. And 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 let's not kid ourselves. I mean, life's challenging. Life throws curves curveballs at us all the time, right through our entire time on earth. But but um, uh, you know, it's about it's about through our actions and our language and our behaviour that even though we're both busy as parents, if something's going wrong in our child's life, we need to stop what we're doing and we need to focus on the child because they are looking to us for us to help them. It certainly is a um, often it's a it's a call out, isn't it? A, you know, like it's a it's a sometimes can be a very subtle call for help that yeah that because of our busy lives we we may miss and what i really loved about what you were saying there before wayne and i and i sort of with my wife around one thing that we hope with all with both of our kids that at the end of the day if there's issues with any of the our children with caleb or cara we don't need them to for them to speak to both of us okay Mm. They can, you know, if it's if Kara feels more comfortable at a conversation with her mother, that's fine. If yeah. Caleb feels more comfortable with uh, his mother, that's fine. If it slips to me, that's fine. But as long as one of us knows mm. if there's something that's sort of griping them a little bit, um, you know, starting to bother their their well being. I mean, that is that's what we're for us anyway. And you know, we're we're all we're all 
but we're all given this responsibility as parents and we've got to work it out as a organic sort of process and we work in our experiences how we were brought up and we we can read books and we can uh, but fundamentally we work it out like we all do i suppose from our own errors sometimes and uh, watching others and how others raise children and you sort of think okay well maybe i'll do this a bit better but but that's one fundamental we have that I love to share because I think that's really important that at the end of the day that that just reduces hopefully that that isolation you know that that dangerous component of mental health that's not well where a child becomes isolated you know and, and starts to feel mm. that they uh, are alone and you know those sort of feelings are something in this in this social world where I think um, it's probably the biggest. Uh, ment- uh, ment- well, not just the biggest mental health condition, the men- biggest condition is sort mm. of social isolation, you know, because it then, then spawns so many problems. Which- yeah, well, I, I think um, we've never been more connected thanks to technology, but we've never been more dis- disconnected socially. And I, 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 I fundamentally uh, am constantly saying to my kids, no doors closed in your bedroom. As a matter of fact, no computers, no iPhones in your bedroom, period. I, I mean, I get pushback, but, um, you know, if you want to be on those things, then let's do it in open spaces, okay? We, we, we have nothing to hide in our family. Uh, I, I, I don't like my kids going into their bedrooms for three or four hours and shutting the door because I don't feel like I have an idea of, of the conversations they're having. So I'd rather them be within our sort of area without prying into what they're doing. And it's an interesting thing that you just said before, Paul. It it reminded me of a recent presentation. I was invited to go and talk at a local football club, junior coaches, and there was probably 14 to 16 male coaches. And I talked a lot about what we've already spoken about tonight. You know, football coaches or coaches in sport in general are like teachers. You have a really big role and responsibility to play, but you're also a mentor. You're influencing these children because they're mimicking what you do, your behavior, your Mm. language. Yeah. And I I got asked a, a, a question by, I think they were under 16 coach, and they'd had issues with a young boy who I've never met. And they were having issues around discipline. He was mucking up at training. He's misbehaving. He's disrupting what we're trying to what we're trying to achieve. What would you do? And I thought about it for a moment. And then my first question back to uh, these two coaches was, "Tell me a bit about the boy's home life and the response." Because the, where I'm getting to with this is, kids play up. And we can we can easily brush it off. Oh, he's he's disruptive. He's he doesn't focus. He's just a he's a bad influence. He's mm. a bad kid. And I think it's too easy to label children. So I went back when I was asked this original question by the two coaches, and the reason why I said, "Tell me about his home life," was I didn't feel that I could give them some advice without knowing more about the background of the child. And the answer that the two coaches gave me were, uh, his dad's been diagnosed with cancer earlier this year. I'm going, mm. ah, that, and I'm not a child psychologist, but common sense would tell me, if I was that 16-year-old boy and I love my dad dearly and I, my dad potentially could pass away because mm. of this condition and I don't have the emotional intelligence or the skills to be right. able to express that positively or productively, then I'm going to act out my hurt and my pain and my frustration 
But people are going to interpret that as, I don't care about my football team. I'm not listening to my coaches. I'm just disrupting. I'm a pain in the backside. No, stop for a minute and let's put ourselves in the shoes of a 16-year-old boy that is going home every day with the thought in his head, is my dad going to die? Mm. That then gives that gave me context mm. that I was then able to say to the coaches, okay, now I know that. What I would be doing if I were you as the coach, I would be investing time into developing a relationship with that boy that is not about football. It is about, hey, we understand this. it's tough at home. But as your coach, I just want you to know that we're here for you. We will support you. If you're having a tough day, come and tell me because then we can make different decisions. We can help you feel comfortable in that environment. And I think I, 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 I think I think we're so quick to judge as a society bad behaviour as bad kids. Mm. Kids behaving badly could be just their way of expressing great pain and great discomfort in their private life. And I think your strategy there, Wayne, is goes back to what you were saying very early on in the podcast about hope and a sense of connection. Mm. That's what you'd be offering that child if you just stop and talk to him for a minute. Yep. Just acknowledge him as a person who's got a lot of 16. How do you deal with potentially a parent dying, possibly? I mean, that, that, that would be frightening. Um, and and I, I, I think sometimes we've got to just take a step back and ignore what's presenting itself in front of us and asking some questions about, okay, what questions can I ask here that help me Un- uncover what's really driving this behaviour. And I think, uh, especially if you see that it is unusual behaviour, you know, if it's something which is different for that child over years, and you think there's there's got to be something going on. And then, you know, and, and and in a flip sort of way, the actual coach, as a male coach, if you look your your analogy exactly, and if there was a a, a father involved. Well, that male coach steps in as a as a major role model, as a major person yep. of influence who is critical in that role. And actually, you know, we talk about educated, being educated about this, you know, having someone who's educated about what is happening and then being able to put, you know, have that have that 16-year-old under their wing, just, you know, a wink here, just, you know, support that little bit extra layer of support can actually make the difference for that boy coming to football loving the camaraderie with the, with his mates looking over at his coach probably seeing his dad come down and watch him play footy and suddenly the whole experience is gone 180 degrees the other way it's it's actually been yep. a therapeutic adventure versus a scenario yep. where it's been you know totally been misconstrued and you know he's he's the bad kid in the footy team who's Who's causing disruption? You know, with education, it can be. You know, it can go the better way, can't it? Well, yeah, I, yeah, I couldn't agree anymore, Paul. And I think the risk that you run, because I could clearly see that the coaches were frustrated. Mm. But, but hopefully, hopefully, after our conversation at the end of the presentation, I, I, I've got no doubt they 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 took it on board to their credit. But. If, if they didn't ask the question and I didn't – and I'm not saying my answer's right. That was just my interpretation once I knew a bit more about the boy's background. The boy, based on what I know, is acting out because so much stress at home and the fear of losing his dad. 
Mm. If that stress is only being exacerbated or amplified by discipline being thrown at the kids, no, no, you know, go home. You know, you're disrupting the rest of the group. If he's getting negative feedback yes, because he just doesn't have the tool or the skill set to express the pain and discomfort, that's only magnifying the difficulties the young boy is currently having with dealing with his dad. So, again, goes back to Kim's question. We, you know, t- coaching, teaching, parenting is about equipping our skills with as much knowledge and skill sets that allow us to deal with the kids' situations. And I'll give you one, and I'm mindful of time, I'll give you one real um, recent example. I, I went to my girls' uh, footy training tonight and um, I, I was, uh, you know, there would be a girl that would come over and spend some time with me. And I, I probably had uh, a dozen girls coming over and we were just kicking the footy. And everyone, and remembering that some of these girls have played three games of footy. It's a strange shaped ball. It does funny things. <laughs> you know, you're not going to be a great, uh, you know, you're not going to be a Paddy Dangerfield straight away. But every girl, every time, and we were 10 metres apart, every time a kick, didn't come to me on the full. You know what they said? They said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I kept saying to every one of them, you don't say sorry. You don't mm. have to say sorry because we're practicing. We're training. This is what happens. And it made me think after training that kids either see it as good or they see it as bad. Yep. There's no shades in between. Yep. We will not get better in anything we do in life unless we make mistakes, we fall over, we fall down, yep. we make some horrible mistakes. But those mistakes allow us to learn and improve. And I think that that's a real challenge for kids. It's either I'm really good and really popular or I'm actually bad and I'm not popular. No, that's not true. Mm. Part of life is to make mistakes, fall over, pick yourself up and have the support around you that allows you to move on and learn. That's right. Well, speaking of support, we've talked a lot about mental health and teenagers and all the stresses on them these days. Where can they go for support? If, for instance, they don't feel like they can go to their parents or their teachers, what are the options for them? Well, I I mean, human beings, irrespective of age, are social creatures, Kim. So I think having a good network of friends that you can talk openly, you can offer some support. I think our our network of friends is really important. I think that's a good starting point. I don't think social media is a good place for kids to look for support, look to get help from. That would be my last advice. Um, You know, home, mum and dad would be a great place. If they're not comfortable talking to mum and dad, who's your favourite teacher? Who do you feel you have a good connection to at school? Oh, I like this teacher. You can go and talk to that teacher. There's a myriad of people that you can you can connect with as a kid. There's dedicated helplines, kids uh, kids line. Um, there's a whole host of online, appropriately qualified uh, uh, service providers that kids can reach out and speak to people. Um, welfare officers, football coaches, influential people in children's lives are available to them. The challenge, I guess, would be is encouraging the kids to make that connection and if there's something that's causing them difficulties the value and importance of having a conversation much sooner is going to help you overcome that challenge much quicker it's very simple we're not trying to build a rocket and put it on the moon we're just trying to teach kids the value of communication away from what's at the end of their fingertips 
Well, Kim, what do you think? There's been some amazing information here that Wayne's talked about and stuff that's, you know, not just isolated for adolescents. It could certainly use for, you know, for adults, elderly, for for many case scenarios. What do you think? Absolutely. Yep. It's been really interesting to talk about it and talk about the impact of world on kids these days and, and parents and how parents cope with that. Been terrific. Now, Wayne, you know, as we uh, come towards this part of the show, we like to pick another layer on the on the person we're interviewing and discuss perhaps an inspirational moment that's influenced their life. And maybe you might be able to think about something during your adolescence that um, that that's been relevant here. Is there something you'd like to share with our back chat uh, audience? Oh, look, I mean, that's that's a really good question. I mean, I I, I, I get motivation from so many different people in so many different places. Um, I think when I think about uh, being a young kid growing up in Warrnambool, being told by a recruiter, I was zoned to Fitzroy. Uh, I wasn't told directly, but it was fed back to me through um, the club president of the football club that I played with. Um, when he found out, we had a great relationship with his family, that this recruiter said there was four players at my club, of which I was one, that I would never be good enough to play AFL football. And uh, that disappointed me and hurt me greatly. And um, I used that as motivation. And I said to myself at that time, I thought, okay, if I ever get an opportunity for any other football club, including Collingwood, even though I dislike Collingwood greatly, um, <laughs> I, I was going to prove that person. Um, and, and the inspiration came from uh, Ron Joseph and Greg Miller. Uh, Ron Joseph was the president of North Melbourne Footy Club. Greg Miller was the uh, recruiting manager of football club who spent four weeks coming and meeting with my, my parents privately. I have no idea how they did that because I was living with mum and dad, but I'm assuming it was while I was at school. <laughs> and these two men believed in me. Uh, and uh, it had a significant effect on me. And, and it's really – look, I don't have the answers. I don't, I, I'm only talking about my experiences. But the value and the, the self-worth that I got from those two people in that football club believing in me, even though someone said from another club I'd never be good enough, was life-changing. And, and, and we all have that opportunity as parents, as uh, role models, as uh, – as business owners and people in all walks of life, is that never under, underestimate the inspiration and the value of the words and the conversations that we have with people on a daily basis because they can have a profound impact on someone's outlook on life and they can they can carry that with them for their entire life. That's fantastic. I mean, that's... Um... It's it's belief, isn't it? I mean that you know having backing backing yourself at a young age and having belief in you, and then that being able to be transferred into something that was sustainable has you know really created a two hundred eighty two game AFL career. Yeah, I was a bit of a stuff and bugger too, Paul. So that might have helped. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Now, Wayne, also, can you give our audience from back chat some some three take home messages as we uh, come towards the conclusion of the podcast? Again, I just want to preface it, um, Paul, for any parents that are listening to this, that, 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 that uh, 
these are only my experiences, and, and I constantly ask myself and my wife, what else can I do better? I, I'm no expert. I haven't arrived at the end destination of being the world's great dad because I make a lot of mistakes. Um, so I'm constantly looking at what I can do to improve to be a better dad. The three most important things that I would have, it is, is um, social media is a part of our children's life. We need to accept that. But we don't need to hand the keys over to the kid's life with social media. It's our responsibility to regulate it, to manage it, to structure in free time off devices so that our kids get a better balance, social media and sport and family life in a more balanced approach. You know, you, you know your kids better than anyone, so if you suspect things or, you know, trust your gut feel and if something's not right, then uh, I would encourage you to have those difficult conversations because they're really important conversations to have. And I think the, the other thing that I would say um, based on personal experience is, is my, my nature is to try and fix things. And I learned very valuable lesson recently with um, my two girls is, and I didn't realise that I was doing this, but whenever there was a situation um, that was causing my girls stress or anxiety, my response would be, well, why don't you do this this way because that's what worked for me. And even though they're nearly 14 and a lot of things are changing physically and hormonally, my girls said, Dad, that's your experience. They're not ours. So what I've actually done recently is that I've started to have conversations that are just question-based. How would that make you feel? How would that decision impact you? What do you think about that? If you did that, what would you feel about that? So it's not me telling them how to live their life. It's allowing them just to have the conversations. They don't expect me to have all the answers. Sometimes they just want me to listen. But really, their time here on earth is theirs. I should be allowing them to tell me how they'd like to deal with it. And even if I don't agree with the way that they deal with it, that's not my choice. I still need to support them. Now, Wayne, let's let's uh, talk about your current venture. So P-U-K up, pucker up. Yep, yep. Can, can you uh, give us, give our listeners, well, first, what does it mean? I mean, it's an interesting yep. term. Give us some background. Yeah, on- a, a, a number of people. Pucker up is all about creating conversations around mental health and emotional well-being. And, and uh, pucker up starts conversations by virtue of its name. It's not it's not a kiss. Um, pucker is a Hindi word, and uh, the definition of pucker is authentic and genuine. So they were two values and traits that I was not for a very long period of time when I was really sick with mental health conditions. So authentic and genuine are values that I live and breathe every day because it helps me maintain good health and good emotional well-being. And the other reason why I wanted to call the organisation Pucker Up was that We want to encourage people. We want to support people. We want to empower people to be authentic and genuine when it comes to their emotional health and their mental health. Because when we're authentic and when we're genuine, we're not investing time lying or pretending or hiding that things aren't right. When we're open and honest, we're in a position to ask for help. We're in a position to go and get the support and the help that we need. 
Um, and the vision of Pucker Up is to create environments for every person to have authentic and genuine conversations about mental health and emotional well-being. And we do that through a number of initiatives over the next 12 months. We'll have a large bike ride from Sydney to Melbourne around suicide prevention, March of next year, a documentary which will capture all of those great stories that unfold through that event. Uh, we're developing an apparel range at the moment. Um, we'll use traditional and non-traditional platforms. And we see ourselves as a facilitator, curator and creator of authentic and conversations using all of those vehicles that invite people into those conversations. These aren't our conversations. We just facilitate them. And by creating them, we're giving people permission to come in and join those conversations and hopefully they take those conversations with them. Fantastic. So just to reiterate, so that's March. Uh, and, and where are we going from from where to where for March Sydney, on the bike rides? Sydney to Melbourne. Uh, it will okay. be more than 1,500 kilometres in seven days, so it's a big bike ride. And every kilometre that we cycle will honour, represent, and hopefully allow the legacy of uh, two people who lost their lives to suicide in 2016. We don't have those numbers yet, but uh, based on the 2015 numbers, it was 3,027. So it's really important, Paul and Kim, that this bike ride uh, allows those people who have tragically lost their lives to suicide last year to be more than just a a statistic. These are people. These are brothers and sisters, mums and dads, aunties and uncles, grandparents, friends. These people need to be honoured. They need to be respected, and I'd hope that their legacy lives on. And we also want to use this as an opportunity to make sure that the families who are left behind, devastated, and their world has been totally tipped upside down, that there are people that care, that there are people that understand their pain, uh, that understand the traumatic and devastating impact that suicide has. And we need to have conversations about suicide and more importantly, suicide prevention, because each day in Australia, we lose eight valuable people to suicide every day. And I'll do everything I can to make sure that that doesn't continue because for me, that's, that's totally unacceptable. So for more details on Facebook, you can you can go to at PuckerUp, P-U-K-A-U-P. Also, yep. Wayne on Instagram and Twitter at Wayne Swass, as well as the website uh, PuckerUp.com. They're the three main avenues, Wayne. Yeah, yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned those, Paul. Um, the Facebook page, we have uh, over 6,000 people as part of that community. And if anybody's interested, I really, really encourage you to join that community. And the reason why I would encourage you to join that community is that I have specifically created the Pucker Up Facebook community because it's safe, it's supportive, it is non judgmental. We are authentic, we are genuine, and we have open conversations. And these are conversations that I want everybody to be a part of because it is life-changing. And the value of these conversations, I get messages almost daily about the importance of it and what it's doing for people. So if there are people that would like to be a part of a safe, supportive, non-judgmental environment, that's the place to come to because you are welcome 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Well, Kim Fenton, uh, this is your first podcast as co-host. 
a bit of technology for this, and I and I think we've probably thrown you into a you know, a pretty deep, mean, deep and meaningful conversation here, uh, a really relevant conversation. And don't you think uh, I'm? Don't you think we're, we should be very appreciative of Wayne's mentor who said to him, "Well, you know, you've got a couple of choices here, Wayne. You can keep working. This is not knock Telstra. Telstra is an important organisation. You can keep staying at Telstra, or you can follow your passion." And I think we've been running over one hour now. Uh, it's palpable, isn't it, Kim? I think that we're all very grateful that Wayne's doing this kind of work. Your work in this area, Wayne, is so important and we are grateful for your efforts because the conversation is the most important thing and the more people who can get out there and have this conversation and have such a wide reach like you can really make a difference. You can actually save people's lives. Fantastic. Yeah, I, look, I, I feel very I feel very privileged, Kim, and I'm very thankful for that. Um I feel like this is my life's work and uh, I'm very grateful to both you and Paul for the opportunity. Paul, for you having me back, uh, Mm -hmm. to Kim, uh, great to have this conversation because uh, these opportunities are are, are a great opportunity. I I treat them very seriously and I hope that, um, you know, the people that listen to the podcast uh, find them beneficial. And I know that you'll cover this uh, off yourself, Paul, but, from me to anybody that's listening, if these this podcast causes you any concern, any stress, any worry, I would strongly encourage you to talk to your partner, to your friends, to your GP, to a professional and get the necessary support that you deserve and that you need. Thank you, Wayne Swass. Pleasure. Thank you. Now, just to continue from Wayne's comments there, in regards information from a website perspective, obviously there's important channels that Wayne mentioned, family, friends, medical practitioners, health practitioners abroad, uh, across the line. In Australia, from a website perspective, uh, beyondblue.org.au is uh, the organisation in Australia to contact and you can call 1300 224636. Uh, in the US, as we have a large following in America, there is the uh, organisation mentalhealthamerica.net and their number toll-free is 800-969-8642. Thank you for listening to Backchat. To stay abreast with the updates with Backchat, please go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Backchat podcast. All relevant website links of today's podcast will be on our Backchat podcast Facebook page. If you like this show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We leave you with one thought. Be the best of what you do and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Backchat podcast. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.